0: the lesson that I learned right is is value black life, fight for black life, um, use your voice um, and that when you are in relationship with black people they will not let you down. They will stand with you they will hold you like nobody else and our work doesn't have to be drudgery it is joyous militancy. And, and I think that's, that's, that's part of our culture that you just don't
1: get anywhere, anywhere else. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, the host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Last episode, we talked with Dorian Warren of community change. We talked about the importance of organizing as this thing for mobilizing how the fate of Black workers often foreshadows the fate of all workers, and as much as the same system that exploits Black workers, has similar but not identical impacts on all workers. And we also spoke about the importance of Black workers to achieving Black freedom. Since that conversation, we find that while Trump is still flailing around asserting he won the election, Biden is moving forward with the transition. Also, the coronavirus is raging throughout the country. With respect to the transition, there's been a lot of talk about the appointments, who's to blame for the downbound losses that the Democratic Party suffered, and how to deal with the GOP. I think from the perspective of building a progressive governing majority, this discussion has the wrong emphasis. A lot of the appointment discussions centered on narrow representation issues, quote unquote, a cabinet that looks like America, and assumptions concerning the importance of access in contrast to actually holding, wielding power. The blame game and the GOP issues has an underlying assumption that the Democratic Party is still the central political institution going forward. The Democratic Party can never be the key institution to building our beloved community. Its institutional self-interest is shaped by the parameters of the two-party winner-take-all election, the desires of the elite to wield the party's power to achieve their goals, not our goals, and the difficulty of winning the hearts and minds of those people who currently don't see their lives improving with the end of racialized capitalism. If the goal is building a progressive governing majority, the Democratic Party is an important tool, but its effectiveness depends upon the power we have, and central to the building of that power is Black worker organizing. Today's episode will focus on attempts to organize Black workers into Black worker centers. But I want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhoods. Bringing you the best guests and most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, large or small, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. Today, my guest is Tanya walls Goburn. Tanya is the executive director of the National Black Workers Center, a network of black Worker centers around the country that strive to build power for black workers with a focus on those areas of the economy where unions are not strong. Prior to joining the National Black Workers Center, Tanya worked for a decade with a coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions, including being the field director. She fell in love with the organizing out of college when she first was part of the Organizing Institute and later organized largely black workforces in the South for Act II, the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union, which was a predecessor union to Unite Here. For full disclosure, I am board president of the National Black Workers Center, and we were excited to bring on someone with her skills and experiences to lead our organization. What I did not learn till later that her parents, like mine, were part of the Great Black Migration from Alabama to Chicago. And our mothers were born in the same town in Alabama, Talladega. Definitely a small world. We had a great conversation about what drew Tanya into organizing and how the National Black Workers' Center is building power to achieve Black freedom. Enjoy the show. Um, So, Tanya, thanks for coming on the show. I truly appreciate this. I really do.
0: Thanks a lot, Okay. Yeah, of course, Steve. And I appreciate you um asking me. And it's cool to just hang out and talk with you. So, you know, like yeah. that. It should be cool. Um, I wanted
1: to ask you some questions about you, about National Black Workers Center, about you know, how you see what's been happening this year mm-hmm. and your vision for black work thing next year. So let's okay. we'll just talk some until till we get cut off, you know? That's the idea. Sounds but first, good. you know, I know you a little bit, um, but People who don't know you, which is even about me, right? Um, tell me a bit about your background. Like, where'd you grow up?
0: So, I um, I currently live in Raleigh, North Carolina, but I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, born and raised on the South Side. So, really proud of that. And um, my parents are from Alabama, so I've got that. Um, you know, they were part of the the Black Migration from the South to the North, looking for quality jobs. So it's really interesting, right, that I work for um, a Black Worker Center now, being that um, my family has that legacy and history of seeking quality work. You
1: know, and Ty, you mentioned Alabama. Uh, you, you and I have talked about it, but our audience doesn't know that we also have the Alabama connection.
0: That's right. not, only,
1: not only are my parents also from Alabama, but our mothers from the same town of Talladega, Alabama, um my mother's a bit older than your mother, so I'm sure they didn't know each other back in the day, but that's kind of the small town connections that um we go from Alabama Alabama to Chicago is how we roll, I guess. Um,
0: yeah, that's cool. And it's so rare that um, you know, before Talladega nights, people didn't even know where Talladega was. So it's it's rare that I actually meet somebody who even for real, for real, knows about Talladega, let alone has family from there. So we were destined to meet.
1: Wanted to send you, my sister got some old pictures of the house my grandmother had on Battle Street, Alabama, in Talladega. I'll send it to you. You have a thing from Alabama itself. So so, um, I'll send it to you, okay? Okay, cool. Another another question. Growing up in Chicago, what were some of the foundational moments before college that shaped your social justice values?
0: You know, um, Stephen, I would say it goes back to when I was 10 years old and in the fifth grade. And, and Roots came out, right? That was the first time for, you know, people of uh, in my generation, Lisa, um, I believe, where we just saw Black people on TV on a regular basis. And it wasn't just that there were Black people on television, right? This was a, a historic um, moment of, of Black history being captured in a way that was um, truthful and, um, and it, you know, just gut-wrenching and i I would say that's the moment that I just fell in love with black people, right? I fell in love with being black it It generated um conversations in my family about who we were, you know because there was also um shame associated with with um slavery, right, and not knowing how to you know talk about it. I remember like kids. Would, would tease you and call you Kizzy and stuff like that. And, and Massimo used to own you and all that kind of ignorant, you know, bullshit. And my parents talked to us about, you know, you know, just brush that off because we are the descendants of those, those um, our ancestors who, who made it. So we're like the descendants of the best of the best. And that was the first of, of the many times where the concept of we stand on shoulders was um, impressed upon me. And then when I was in um high school, I think like 14, 13, 14 years old, my aunt picked me up um in the summer and dropped me off in front of the Urban League and said, Go in there and make yourself useful. And she did something similar, you know, in the next summer with Operation Push. And so, you know, if I at the time I was just young, I was just doing whatever I was told to do, you know, I had menial tasks or whatever, but it's it's what began um my, um, my passion, and my understanding of what it means to be black and to love black people. And it just, you know, it just grew and got built on, you know, you said before college, but college really solidified it for me. But it was, it was just indoctrinated. I mean, it was just part of what I did. And so i just, that was part of my community. My friends were part of these organizations, and it was just normal for me.
1: Do you remember what you did for the Urban League, a push back in the day?
0: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, um, I we worked on John Stroger's campaign, and we we and me and my sisters came up with this little song. I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you before, but it was like Stroger, he's our man. Stroger, yes he can. And our job was to pass out buttons. And we just sang these buttons, passing, singing these songs and pass out buttons. You know, we uh, we would go to Harold's Chicken, the uh, Urban League and go pick up lunch for people, um, you know, did mailings and flyers, um, you know, just really like sweep the floor. We were kids. So whatever adults told us to do, we did that. And at the time, they didn't even have a youth chapter. So it was just, you know, a bunch of kids hanging out, doing whatever they told us to do. And, you know, be quiet and sit down and listen was pretty much the, the foundation that we received at that time.
1: Destroyed your in campaign. Yes, he did. Yeah. So, an early example of Black women take the lead, running things, right? That, that's what that it was. Really it, it sounds right. cool. So, jumping through college, maybe, what was your first taste of Black worker organizing?
0: Yeah. This. So, I'm um, I'm gonna I'm gonna digress a little bit and not talk about Black worker organizing, but I do want to talk about. Um, my awakening is what I consider it when I went to college. So like I said before that, it was, you know, just I love being Black. I love being around Black people. And I would frequently say to my friends who went to HBCUs, I went to Loyola University of Chicago, that you all went to college, but I went to war. So college was the first place that I saw the word nigger written somewhere. It was on the hallway and it looked familiar to me but I didn't know what it was. And I remember still today, like seeing the word and trying to sound it out phonetically and be like, niger, until I figured out what it was and, you know, went to my dean to say, you know, this is what I see in the stairwell and him telling me that I was lying and that the, you know, the wonderful white students of Loyola would never do anything like that. And Loyola at that time, it was like 3% um, African-American. I, this is another story of how I even decided to go there. Um, but, you know, so I ended up, this is, I'm at um, the Evanston campus, getting on the bus, CTA, to go to Walgreens to buy a disposable camera. This is in the 80s, to come back to school, to take a picture, get back on the bus, to go back to Walgreens, to drop off the disposable camera, then take a bus to go back to school. The next day, while I was in class, the dean came to me um, to ask me to show him where this word was written. Now, the day that it happened, I said, come with me, and he refused to come with me. So I, he doesn't know that I've gone to Walgreens and done my thing or whatever. He pulls me out of class. I go to show him and it's been painted over. And I was just livid. Um, and, but he doesn't know, right? I've gone to Walgreens. So of course I get back on the bus, go to Walgreens, pick up my film, go back, prove it to him. He says, you know, I could have wrote it. He didn't know what, where k came from. That just, that's just kind of um, began it. When, um, you know, we had, um, so many incidences of um, just violence against Black students and, and emotional violence of people saying to us that you don't belong here. I remember um, a woman that I did an internship with, we both were um, students um, political science um, in a political science class, and she told me about how she was having these financial aid woes that I didn't have to worry about because I was Black. And all of the black students there got black scholarships and grants to go, but it wasn't fair to the white students. And so I'm like, you know, 17, I don't know any better. I go to financial aid office to say, hey, I never got my black dollars. I didn't get my black scholarship money. And the woman by the kind of counter, was like, this is just like my Urban League experience. Just sit down over there. And she waited until everybody left yanked me up by the collar and was like, who told you that? And really helped to explain to me what was going on. And I've got hundreds of stories like that. But when I was in college, I quickly realized that you, that I had to make a a decision. I was either going to keep my head down or I was going to keep my head up and fight. And kids that I went to school with, um, I went to um, Holy Name Cathedral. White kids I went to school with that I was friends with that came over my house that I grew up with stopped talking to me, right? Because they had to also make a decision. They were either going to go with the majority or they were going to keep their Black friends. And there was one guy um, who was white who kept, you know, kept talking and kept hanging out with Black people. Um, but that was my awakening. And it, it um, led me to become a student activist. And at that around my senior year, the Organizing Institute was going into its second year. And the Organizing Institute is a training program that trains people to become union organizers. And there was this woman from SEIU who was doing recruiting for them. This was before the OI was part of the AFL-CIO. And she was looking for me because she was looking for student activists. And I didn't know anything about my parents were in unions, but I didn't think anything about it other than. My father would say, when you graduate, make sure you get you a good union job with a pension. And, you know, you're young, so you're like, okay, whatever, Dad, yeah, I'll do that. And, um, but so anyway, when I met her and she talked to me about this organizing institute, it was a three-day um, weekend program, and then it led to an internship and then an apprenticeship. But the three-day was in Washington, D.C., and I had never been to D.C. before, mm. and I was, you know, I was like 19 at the time. So I was like, or 20, I think it was 20 at that time. So I was like, ooh, this is a free trip to DC. So I went just for the free trip to DC. But immediately um, during that three day, it it clicked. I knew exactly what it was, what was going on um, and had a conversation with the organizing director at that time, his name was Ernest Bennett. And he asked me to come and do an internship with them um, uh, the Magamet Clothing Textile Workers Union, and I said well, I only would do it if I can just organize Black people. And little did I know, right? Like Act Two is totally at that time was running the South and totally only organizing Black people. So it was like I've got the job for you. And um, I had a, um, my I was a criminal justice major, and I had already accepted a position um, with the state of Illinois, got me that good government job, and was going into alternatives of um, to imprisonment. And my starting salary was $40,000 a year. So my parents were all like, woohoo, happy. And I decided to not take that job and turned it down and instead took an organizing position with Act Two for $250 a week. And my parents were not pleased with me at all.
1: So, <laughs> <but laughs> roughly, when is this now? This is the mid this, to late 90s? Yeah, it was early. No, it was early. It was
0: 1990, 1990 and 1991.
1: Okay, sounds cool. Sounds cool. So, what were some of your experiences um, with Act Two?
0: Um, so, I I immediately moved to um, the South. My first campaign I worked on was in Monticello, Arkansas, with the um, uh, Mohawk um, Carpet, um, and the first campaign that I got really connected to was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was organizing, um, trying to working to organize the people who stock the food on um, on airplanes who were mostly like kids my age so they were like in their 20s Um, some of them were single parents and a lot of them um you know this was this was their some of them were trying to go to college and whatever but we were all in the the same age bracket and we lost that campaign and I'll, I'll be honest and say that I didn't give I wasn't that um Studious, right? I wasn't working my hardest. I was just having a good time hanging out. And it's
1: your first campaign. It's your first campaign. You're young. I mean, come don't, don't be too hard on yourself.
0: Well, I'm. You know me. I'm always hard on myself. But So this is this is the reason why Stephen and I'm I'm hard on my. I'm what I got hard on myself because when we lost that campaign and we I talked to people and we were hanging out, people were in tears. I heard, you know, like these were people who I consider my friends at this point, talk about how they don't know how they're gonna pay their rent, that you know, they're they don't have they have children they gotta pay for. And it was like real life in my face immediately. And that wasn't my experience. I didn't have like if this didn't work out for me, I could go back home. I could go back to Chicago, I could live with my parents, I could go back and resume the trajectory that I was on before. And it touched me deeply, and I realized that. This is no joke. We are playing with people's lives. And when people make a decision to sign a union card and to fight against the boss, they are putting their livelihoods on the line. And that's very serious. Right. And that's no joke. And it began my being serious and intentional and my organizing. And I never um, in my career of organizing, I organized for 15 years. I only lost two campaigns. After that first one, I never, okay. would, I will never put workers on the line if we can't win because I know what's mm-hmm. at stake.
1: That That's a good, good thing to hear. Good, good, good thing to hear from you. Um, well, given your your various victorious campaigns and other experiences as well, what might be two or three key lessons you learned from your experiences with ACTU and the South? Yeah,
0: you know, and... The key lessons that I learned didn't, some of them have to do with organizing, but what I want to talk about was my experience as being a Black worker. So when I came to, to work for Act Two at that time, I was surprised and expected, being very naive and not understanding um, about the dynamics of labor, I expected if we we're organizing majority Black people, then the majority of people on staff are going to be Black also, and, and that wasn't the case. I was the first person um, in the Southern region of um, Act Two at that time to be hired and to become a lead organizer that didn't come out of factory or plant. And the reason that I got to that level um, so quickly is because there were women who supported me who didn't have the opportunity that I had, right? Like I was viewed differently because I didn't come from you know, um, because I had an education, because I didn't come from from the plant or for the meal. And um, those women lifted me up and allowed me to stand on their shoulders to have the opportunity to run my own campaigns when Black um, women at that time, there was only one who was running their own campaign, this woman named Hattie Jones, who loved um, to death. And they taught me everything that I knew and they fought for me. They fought for me to to join the staff union. They fought for me to be um, a lead. And they taught me that just because me just because I'm organizing workers doesn't mean I'm any different than the workers that I'm organizing. And I should always see myself as as a worker. And you know, I I ended up you know just com- complaining and and. Saying like, why do we hire more Black people? And was told by one of my mentors that Black people don't want these jobs, organizing jobs. I was like, that's crazy. That led me to creating the um, the HBCU, the Historical Black College Recruitment Program, um, and going to the AFL to, you know, to lead that um, that that um, initiative, which I'm happy is still going on. And that's been um, prior to me coming to the Black Workers Center. That's been my experience, right? Like working for unions that were led by white people who would then, I found myself in positions of having to argue about what was best for black people as if they knew my community better than I did.
1: Mm-hmm. Any of the lessons you might learn from organizing and besides, you know, you want to better nobody else out there and those things.
0: Um, so the, the lessons that I learned, right, is, is value black life fight for black life, um, use your voice um, and that when you are in relationship with black people, they will not let you down. They will stand with you, they will hold you like nobody else. And our work doesn't have to be drudgery. it is joyous militancy and and I think that's 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 part of our culture that you just don't get anywhere anywhere else.
1: Wow, I just love that phrase, joyous militancy. Our conversation then shifted to Tanya's work heading up the National Black Worker Center. Let's risk us a second. And, 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 you know, my mind's bad in my old age. About five years ago, you came on the National Black Worker Center, as yep, you did. That's right. Mm-hmm. So one, why'd you come over to us? Because people may not know in the audience, I'm mm-hmm. board president uh, 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 and co-founder of the project. Why'd you come to this organization but also tell people, about what 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 you're doing right now in the position, what the group organization is doing.
0: Sure. So when I so this is interesting, Stephen. When I started working with um, Act Two back in 1992, I met this woman named Ashaki Benta who was with the Black Workers for Justice, and she was like, "What are you wasting your time for? you Act Two, you need to come work with us with Black Workers for Justice. You need to do Black organizing." And I was like, this lady is crazy. I don't know about this. It doesn't seem like a legitimate thing, because you know, I just was very young at that time. So it's interesting that it's kind of come back full circle that I'm actually now working with the um, Black Worker Center. I don't know if I've ever shared that with you, nah. but um, right before I um um or right when the the National was looking for an executive director a lot of the Black Lives Matter um, incidents and and uprising and and, um, revolution was beginning. And I was with the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions at the time I was their national field director and in um, a position that I frequently found myself in, having arguments and debates about how do we, or not how do we, that we should discuss with our membership which is majority of people of color, how this is impacting them, right? And so traditionally, I find that um, some unions just see workers and Black people just, and they put them in silos and boxes, right? They don't see the full inter, um, individual. And the the pushback that I got was, you know, um, at Kaiser, we've got the best contract in healthcare, which was true, right? we got the best... Um, Benefits, we've got the best salaries. All of that is true, but that doesn't negate the fact that our members are fighting for them their lives when they are in their communities. And to have a, um, a movement of people that is, tries to separate people from their humanity made no sense to me. So, anyway, um, I'm having this debate yet once again, um, being really passionate about what we should do. And my executive director told me I was silly. And right then and there, in my head, I was like, this is the last time this mofo is going to call me silly. And I knew that I was leaving. Um, and um, a guy um, that we both know, Amaha Casa, um, reached out to me and shared with me the job description. I was like, you should check them out. I think this is this is right for you. And when I read it, I was like, this is right for me. This is full circle, everything that I've been doing and wanting to do since back in college when I was doing um Student organizing on my campus of Black students to wanting to organize um, Black people in the South. And as I don't mention this before, but as I rose in my current labor movement, the more you rise, the less you get um, to work with Black people. You get you're removed from the workers. So um, coming to work with the National Black worker Center has been an opportunity for me to to bring all of my my skills, talents, lessons, everything, right. Um, and bring it right back home. And that's what it feels like. Like I'm home and and it feels really good. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. And just in terms of like who the National Black Worker Center is, we are a network of, of Black Worker Centers. Currently, there are eight Black Worker Centers um, across the country from North Carolina to Chicago to DC to, to the Californias. And, and we're growing. And we exist because racism exists. And we exist because Black people are oppressed, and we continuously um, have to grapple with the, the history of exploitation. And uh, that comes from the legacy of um, slavery, in my opinion, where people don't want to give Black people, well, employers and businesses don't give Black people um, what they're worth. And we, where we don't have the ability to um, claim the full value of our labor. And so that's, a, that's our, you know, that's part of our trajectory. You know, building power, building bases, educating and training Black people to go get with theirs.
1: I have a, a two-part question about the work. Um, first question simply, what are some of the work that you developed that kind of came from your experiences organizing Black workers in the South primarily? And then the second part is simply how did COVID impact this work? But more the first part, right initially. I mean, what give me a flavor of the work itself.
0: Yeah, Stephen. So one of the um the first things that I did when I came to the Black Worker Center is I did um a listening tour um of all of the the local Black Worker Centers to meet the the staff, the volunteers and the members and get um, you know, kind of immersed in the various communities of our centers and one of the things that struck me was how people some people were embarrassed to talk about the racism they were experiencing at work that some of the um the younger workers couldn't even put their finger on what was going on they couldn't they didn't know it was racism like they they personalized it and that led us to creating um this working well black initiative that's grown since those those early days but the first um our, um um, the work that we did regarding working while black was to just get people to build a community where people felt comfortable sharing their experiences. And, and the way that I uh, would describe it to people is, you know, it's like, instead of you coming home and saying to your friend or your, your partner, or whatever, like you will not believe what happened to me at work. Right. And kind of rumbling and complaining about it and leaving it there, you know, being able to share those experiences publicly within your community, um, be it online, be it video, whatever. Um, but it, what, what it did is allowed people to recognize that they are not alone, that this is not an individual um, experience. It helped them to define what was going on within their, um, their themselves and within their, their communities. And one of the things that we hoped, which has been really true, was that people, once they shared those experiences, other Black people, other Black workers were like, wait, that's happening to me too. And through that shared experience, uh, workers would say enough is enough. And, you know, in that saying enough is enough, they would develop uh, strategies to resolve the issues that they were facing. And that's exactly what we have seen. One of the things that we value and say frequently at the National Black Workers Center and all Black Worker centers is that, you know, all we have to like we are the solutions that we have been have been waiting for. We're the leaders that we've been waiting for. We don't need to tell people what to do. We just need to create the space and provide the the education and the nurturing to lift up people's innate leadership that comes from within. And that's what we've seen with um the the Working Wild Black initiative, especially in our early days. And, you know, and in New Orleans, um, with Stand with Dignity. One of the stories that immediately happened was um they learned through their story circles that they were holding, um, about the um the municipal system of um, penalizing people through fines that grew exorbitantly really quickly and did something about it. And we, you know, have a story that we lift up with this gentleman named Ezelle Williams who started off with the um a traffic ticket that grew to um twenty three or thirty two thousand I can't remember exactly what it was and that worker center uh, realized that that was happening to a lot of people in their communities and because that fine was so high he lost his driver's license which meant that he was limited to the types of employment that he could have right he could only um, get a job somewhere that he could either walk to ride a bike to, or take public transportation to. And if you've been to New Orleans, you know, public transportation is not a, a decent option. So it meant that he was relegated to fast food and retail, right? Low wage work. Um, and so anyway, I'm, I feel like I'm going a little bit too long into details there, but, um, but what happened was that we, they recognized that a lot of people had this ser- this experience they created a traffic clinic as a result of that by partnering uh, with colleges, getting um, judges and um, attorneys to assist them. And those traffic clinics continue today. And Ezell, who we mentioned, who I mentioned earlier, he was able to get these this huge fine reduced to to nine dollars. And mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, it just was such a powerful story of not just the amount of money that. Um, he was able to, to get the fine reduced to, but just the power of what, what is a testimony of the collective power, intellect, and will of black people when, and black workers when they are given the the space to think and desi- and define and design their own freedom and liberation.
1: That's a phenomenal story about, about New Orleans. And my thing about the story here, you talk about it again, I've heard it before, obviously, I think of a couple of things. One is the fact that a lot of times, as you mentioned before, people see their problem being their problems. That's right. And no one else's. And they kind of take it internally.
0: Mm-hmm. Or
1: what will happen is you go to the barber shop, you go to the corner, and you all, we all start bitching about shit, right? But well, we don't actually turn the commonality of the experience into actual power building to, to change. And so the value of what I see that folk did in New Orleans was that, it, it, one, it makes sure people, can, we, people began to collectivize the experience. So not just one person, but take it beyond just the, on the corner talking about it and finding a way to solve the problem as well. So it's a really, really, really good story. And I, I'm I'm glad folk did that. And I, I'm glad we can kind of replicate that best we can.
0: Yeah. I was just going to just talk um, um briefly before I jump into COVID, right, um, is then how that's how that's grown, right? Because once you, you have that taste, you want to expand it. And so that led us to doing the Working Wild Black Expo and doing Working Wild Black videos. And we are constantly looking for ways and opportunities to get people to share their stories and recognize the, the power in and sharing their stories. And not just for the sake of like you said, sharing stories and bitching about it, but for finding um solutions, which is which has been really um phenomenal and, and incredibly isp- inspiring for me to 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 witness. Um, so, time
1: before you get to COVID, what website can we, should we people go to to learn more about the national Black worker Center?
0: Sure. so stephen, um our main website is the national so www Black Worker with an Um, We also have recently launched, um, as recent as this past September, uh, another site that's called WeReady, W R E A D Y dot org. And WeReady is um, a site and a platform where we ask people to take um, a pledge that speaks to what we've been talking about, the fact that we believe that Black people are ready to, to build change in their workplaces and in their communities, and it provides you with some resources and tools to, to make those um changes and be connected to other workers throughout the country, throughout other um, Black Worker Centers throughout our country, um, and people in your city and state. So want to make sure that I'm lifting up those two ways for people to connect with us. Um, Ww National Black Worker Centers with an S.org and wwReady Project. And then of course you can um, follow us and like us on all of our social media outlets from Facebook to Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all that. We're
1: there. You know, Ty, we charge for the commercials, by the way. So I'll send you an invoice. that you okay. can um, Put it on my hear, tab. Right? <laughs> Sounds great. But seriously, um, this has been a strange year. Um, it's been both the issue of COVID. It's been the idea of the response in the economy around COVID. It's been around the murder of, of George Floyd and other, other Black folks and the amazing response to that. I'll call it COVID, but it's really the, all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. How has this impacted the work of the National Black Worker Center this year?
0: You know, um, Stephen, this this collision of um, these different pandemics, like the the pandemic of racism that we already were dealing with, and then the health pandemic, and then the um, the the revolutions that were taking place in the streets. If I'm honest, we were not well-positioned to, to deal with that calamity, right? The ways that we had been organizing were very traditional in terms of just being um, face-to-face and in-person and building um, relationships. But the, the silver lining, if there has been a silver lining for our organization, is that it, 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 it forced us to, to re-examine the ways that we were interacting within our communities, And I would say that the first thing that we did was assess our ability to help people when they were hurting greater um, than we had ever seen people hurt in a a, a really long time and and recognize that we currently did not have the capacity that was needed to be the light um, and to create the base and build the leadership that we wanted. And so it, it it was the fire that we needed to, to really expand our vision um, and our our goals for who we interact with and how we interact with people. And so the first thing that I want to lift up is we we did um this assessment um um in terms of who were the people that we were in contact with. And so the assessment, right, is a really simple assessment that kind of comes back from my union days, right? But we call them the ones, the twos, and the threes. The ones are the people who are like you and I, right? We call ourselves progressive. We tend to vote all the time. We engage in um, routine conversation about politics and what's going on in the world and solutions and all that kind of stuff. The threes, right? would be in union language like the antis but in our language we those would be the people who who just don't want to engage in in this sort of um uh a, a, a culture a universe if you will right they are the people who you know might have voted for Trump for example right the people that you know who don't see who who aren't in alignment with our vision of that things need to change. Like they are maybe they just accept things as they were. But the the thing that we where we landed was like the twos. The twos are those individuals who are in the middle, right? They may work two jobs. They may have registered to vote, but they never voted because nobody really gave them any tools to vote after they made the registration, like that they they um got their registration. They um, they may be unemployed. They are the ones who whose voices go unheard. And I believe that those twos are where the majority of black people are in this country. And our focus and um, that, that those twos, those, that's our sweet spot. That's where we need to give our energy. And one of the things that we did when we did this assessment is like, we spent too much time talking to the ones, right? That's the preaching to the choir. That's 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 the easy work. It's easy to talk to people who are in agreement with you, even focusing on the threes. It's easy to sit and bone, um, um, moan and lament about the threes and what they're not doing and what they should do. But the hard work, is organizing the twos, and I believe, and the National Black Workers Center knows that when we have those conversations, when we organize the twos, that's when we build power, and and that's where we are centering our attention and our focus. And I want to share um, just a, a really quick story with you. Um, two things: one um, for the um, the elections that just took place. Um, we um, we, we you know we decided that there was a we needed to provide support to people that wanted to to vote. and um, our office and headquarters is based in in North Carolina and we're part of um, a coalition that's called North Carolina for Black Lives. And we engaged in activity that we called PPE, and it was our own form of PPE, right? Um, And our PPE stood for power, protection, and encouragement. And that was our mission, to bring that to the polls. What that looked like was bringing food and water and music and dancing and creating a joyous and joyful environment. And discourage and, and encouraging people to not be discouraged by, by long lines. One of the things that I want to share that was so uplifting and just touched my heart. So as we are doing this, um, a lot of folks would say, you know, would ask, does it cost any money to get, you know, the food or the water? Nope, it's all free. It's all good for you. And what is this organization that's doing that? And why are you doing it? And when we explained it, people would come back. They would say, okay, I'm coming back to help. And you, you know, you think, okay, yeah, you say that, but they came back and they came like, they went to the grocery store, bought cases of water and brought cases of water. And then just, some people donated water. They came back with, with boxes of chips and bags of candy. And some people stood with us and helped pass things out. And that's, that's, that, those are the twos, right? Those are the people who were like, wait, what? There, there's a group of people that that gives a shit that they're here for us. I'm down with that, and I want to be part of that. And that's what we've got to do more of. I think that um, you know, our it's, it's something that we've gotten away from. It, I just thought about this when we talked about like how I got started and how my aunt just dropped me off at the Oregon League. So go make yourself useful. We need to do more of that. That was part of um um my my upbringing and. And you just, I just walked in the door and was like, hey, I want to be useful. And people welcomed me. And so while we may not have, especially in this moment of COVID, the ability to just walk in the door and say, I want to be helpful, what we do have and what is required of us if we are going to you know, um, um, unburden ourselves of this systemic racism that's in, in the workforce, right, We've got to go to doors and we've got to be bold and have conversations and not be intimidated and not be afraid to say to people, hey, this is what's up. This is what I want to do. I see you. I believe in you. And I know who you are. And that is that you are a leader. All black people are leaders if we just present that opportunity to them. The other example that I would give is that, you know, it was Just Giving Tuesday um, earlier this um this month and we um because we've been out in the community so much we've been amassing a number of, of emails and we for the first time just said let's let's reach out to people and talk to them and I've just been so heartened by the number of people who responded and so giving Tuesday is primarily about making donations but we wanted to just say you know that in addition to like the fundraising that we're doing We're giving, we're giving back. The National Black Worker Center is giving back to communities and we're looking for people who um, want to give back. And so just hearing um, or receiving emails and texts from people saying, yep, I'm down with that. I want to figure out how to do it has been really heartening. And I think that, like I said, that's our sweet spot. That's where we need to give our attention to. We can't, we don't have the luxury of just talking to one another and just moaning about what other people aren't
1: doing. You now, when you talk about the experience you've had this year and, and kind of what's going to bring the joyous mil, militancy to the, to the, to the, the yes. poll line, you know, I think about how we had to do more, both organizing, but also community building. Yes. You know, um, and, and there's an overlap there, but not all, always an overlap there. It's not mm-hmm. a full one on one overlap. And a lot of times we get so deep into the quote unquote signs of organizing that it becomes transactional. And, you, and you, lose the, you lose the lifeblood of folk who, who, who simply are involved in community in many ways. And because we, we can, can tap into people's sense of community, then things you'd mentioned comes forth, right? People bring you food, bring you water. Mm-hmm. You may not need a massive grant from some foundation because you have links to the people themselves. So this whole question of how to actually build community, both, but once but, but understand community that does exist, how do you strengthen that? And would need be how do you build more community settings so people can tap into and unleash the power they actually have.
0: Mm-hmm. And Stephen, don't you think that's our superpower? Like that, that's our culture. That that's our that's our legacy. And and so when I I agree wholeheartedly with you, that's our superpower. When we remove ourselves from building community, we can't build anything that's lasting. I w- I would say one
1: thing that it's not just our superpower. It's everybody's superpower. And the problem is that the right has done the better than we had the last 30-some-odd years. And and so people will be in despair, but the nature of their community takes them in crazy directions. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think that all people are social people. All people want to have community, are in community. And the question is, does that community lead you toward supporting other communities outside of your own or you kind of shrink down, narrow up, and attack other communities. So yeah. I really think that all folk are in community, all people want communities. Mm-hmm. And when I've, I've done a little bit of reading about some of the post-election analyses of Latinos in South Texas and so forth. And, and I, I spent 27 years in Houston. So I'm half Texan in some ways, right? And, and so I'm always excited what's happening there. And it seemed that what was going on in, in, in parts of Texas, my kind of the quick outside of view, is that one, in South Texas, you had a, a kind of natural conservative lean to some folk down in the valley, be called in South Texas. And then the GP began to build on that, of institutions and so forth. I think it's important that, that we always find ways to, through our organizing, build communities as, as well. We want to pivot to a last set of, of, of themes, the topics, Tanya. Um, what's your vision for black, black freedom? And when you give us the word for that, I'll, I'll ask you next, another question, which is, well, given that vision for Black freedom, what are you going to do next year? Twenty twenty
0: one. This is um it, it's a little tricky to answer this right because my vision of black freedom is gonna take a whole lot longer to achieve in just one, one year. But my That's um my my, my my vision is what I spoke about um earlier, Stephen. Have black people having ownership over their labor, right? The the ability to declare and define the value of of their labor, that that that's freedom to me, and and we don't have that right now. And it's and I, like I said before, I think it's um it's rooted in um the history of of slavery and exploiting um, black workers and um, exploiting them in, in terms of you know not paying them for for their work, and we see that happen um, even today. It's really interesting to me how we have all of these um you see these employers and corporations who who love black lives now but they don't want to pay black you know but you know decent um, black wages and the, the the um the 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 history of that of um the exploitation of black people that hasn't changed especially when you think about covid people say oh it's gotten so bad it reminds me of what my grandfather would say when we talk when he would talk to me about um the, the Great Depression, he would say, you know, you know, those white folks, they was killing themselves, but we always been poor, So it wasn't nothing new to us. Right. And even now, um, you know, um, black people are twice as, um, their unemployment rate is twice as high, you know, as, as, uh, as, as their white counterparts, we know that they're not paid equal. And, and in this moment, right. Just, this is kind of like an aside, but earlier, um, today I was reading, um, um a couple of articles about black um one i think it was new york times was talking about how black women save the election in um in georgia and then there was another one that talked about how black um people are needed for um the democrats victory like the, the democrats can't win without black voters and um this, that was about voting but to me it's cyclical it's all tied to to valuing black people and so here's the thing right one of the initiatives that we have is black voices black votes which speaks to the reality that black votes matter but black um black voters do not matter right and so where our votes are needed to get us get um candidates elected but the second that we get elected we are discarded and um and you know forgotten about and that is that's that's just wrong right in any other um scenario if you were valued that much you would be treated as such right and black labor is necessary for building this it has been necessary for building this country and yet we don't receive the um the accolades and certainly not the pay that you would um, expect to come along with that. And so until we have that, um, we're not free. And so that's what I mean when I say like being able to have um, to, to define the value of our, of our labor. So then their question, right. was like, what is the National Black Workers Center going to do about it in in, in next year?
1: Before you get there, as Uh you are talking about, about um, it's a good phrase how, the votes of value, but not the voters themselves. And it seems what I thought about just going through the whole discussion on that is the question of power.
0: Yeah. So
1: that 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 no one's well in most situations, um, people with power don't value others because of some sort of intrinsic value they see of them.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: they value them because of the power the people actually have.
0: That's right. That's and,
1: right. And So I think back to from that to the quote from Frederick Douglass: "Robert Power c- couldn't see nothing on demand. Never will. Mm-hmm. Never never did." And that's an important thing that a lot of times we get caught up in kind of, I want respect and I want to be valued and say, well, instead of going to saying any lack of respect or lack of value comes from a lack of power.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so
1: to me, the challenge is always how do you build power? That's right. And, and so given, given your sense of, of, of Black freedom and, and being more valued and, and, and those things, what things do you want to do this upcoming year um, with the National Black Worker Center?
0: So here's the thing, like you say stuff and then I just want to keep talking about what you said and not just switch off. So let me just say this quickly. Like when you you talk about power, right, the other thing that goes hand in hand with that power is that we have to recognize our power. Right. and, And utilize that power. And so it's one thing to read about how Democrats can't be elected without black voters, it's another thing right for us to mobilize train and educate people on what to do with that power like to it's because that power extends beyond election day right and so how do we how do we exercise that power i even think about um when um when um, the covid crisis first began in the year and People were like, I'm not going to work because I don't want to, you know, get sick. And, uh, you know, if you remember, like um, initially employers weren't providing PPE um, equipment. And I know here in um, North Carolina, we went to, you know, have some conversations with people and they were being told, well, if you want it, you got to buy it yourself. And all of that changed. Right. Suddenly, people were—they were, um, um, were heroes—and we were thanking workers. And you saw shields appear and, and you know, and protecting these employees. Employees, and, and why was that? It was because people were withholding their labor, and that's powerful. And I don't think that we—we we need to do more to—to to help to make those connections, because I think part of what you were—were um, were alluding to, Stephen, is that people. Don't necessarily make those connections, they don't recognize that power and and that's the the beauty of you know of, of organizing and building community and the beauty of National Black worker Center is helping people to make those connections so that they can have more ownership of um their power okay, so then to get to um <laughs> the what we're doing um in twenty twenty one so I started off by talking about um the um, the wake up call that um, 2020 has been for for our organization, and so we are really grounded in the fact that if we're not building a base, if we're not building more Black Worker Centers, then we're not creating value in our community. And so the you know the theme of what we've been saying just now is. How do we turn on that light for as many people as we possibly can? Um, when I talked about this We Ready uh, movement that we're starting, that's what it's part of, right? It's, a, it's about training and educating and building this base of workers who can advocate for themselves, who know what their what their what their value is, who um, are able to recognize the leadership within themselves and with others, so that they are building more um, black worker centers and when I talk about training um, specifically the trainings that we are providing are helping um, people to to be leaders within their workplace. unfortunately, uh, uh, we know about um, the decline of union organizing that you know has been taking um, for been happening for a number of years um, and so but but because of our experience with um, labor, we know also, the power of organizing workers and training workers. And so when I was a union organizer, I would say to my committee, we don't become a union because the National Labor uh, Relations Board comes and honors our cards or holds an election or that we got our contract signed. In fact, our contract isn't worth the paper that it's written on if we can't enforce that contract. And so a good organizer, in my opinion, immediately trains their committee to start acting like a union even before that union comes in. And so that's what we're doing, not acting, not teaching people to act like a union, but teaching people and training people to realize their power. So that means I'm providing um training on health and safety issues, how to, you know, um ensure that your workplace is a safe place to work in, how to have a conversation with your employer about racism, discrimination, sexual harassment, those sorts of things, so that we are building this cadre of people who are leaders and bosses in their workplace and in their communities. And, and the um the goal is that we will build a base that um Continues to grow Black Worker Centers across this country. Should be
1: should be a good 2021. Some closing things. I always ask my my guests because I love I love music. I love to read. So what have you been reading recently? One or, one or two books or articles or whatever.
0: Um, so I've been reading a lot of articles. I'm looking forward to um, to Christmas because I'll get a chance to to go on vacation and and to do some more reading. But I've been reading a lot of articles, um, Stephen, about, you know, so um, I mentioned earlier about how we had to transition a lot of the organizing that we were doing was face-to-face and in-person, and now it's more um, digital organizing that we're moving into. And so I've been reading a lot of articles about um, not the digital divide, but the history of the internet and coding and how the coding excludes Black people. It doesn't speak to Black people because that's really just kind of fascinating to me. And what got me turned on to it was I read an article, and I can't remember, maybe it was, um, oh, I can't, I'm not gonna say because I can't remember who it was, but it was about this 14 year old girl in Fayetteville, Georgia, who started some little dance situation um, on TikTok. And if you've been to TikTok, you know you have all these little dance competitions are crazy. You don't check your head, no, so maybe you don't. But on TikTok, the young folks um, create these choreographed dance moves, and then other people copy them, and they just dance on, on TikTok and whatnot. And it's like, who did the dance the best? And so there's this phenomena of Black young women and girls creating these, um, these trends, these battles or whatever, and not being credited for it. And, and, and what they're seeing on social media is like, they create it, then it gets copied by um, um, non-Black people who then get credited for, for these trends. And so I was, so when I was starting to read about this, I was like, is there no place, right, where Black people can own their creations. It made me think about um, the Me Too movement, right, which we know was started by um, a Black woman, but quickly shifted into a white narrative. And so that sort of thing has been, um, it's got me really interested in, as we move into uh, more um, activism in social media and connecting with people digitally, I want to better understand how racism shows up in um, social media and online.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're trying to develop a list for my website. So I'm going to come back to get an actual title from you, by the way. Okay. Um, I'll bring later on. But equally important is music. So what's the music that keeps you going, keeps you flowing, keeps you keep you alive right now?
0: Have you ever listened to um, Willow Smith? No. Jada and because You have done. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, girl can sing. She has a beautiful voice. And so... Um, I am listening to her like with, I never even thought about it.
1: Um,
0: uh-huh. um, the artist, um, her has started, um, this Girls with Guitars on her Instagram. Have you heard okay. of that?
1: And no, 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 no. yeah,
0: no. and so she features these women artists who play the guitar and do just like indie music that you would not have known about, and so came across that. and Willow Smith, um, did this song and I was and it blew me away it was deep it was spiritual it was like think what you want to about Will and Um and Jada but they did something right with that child and she is gifted I'm gonna send you okay. I'm gonna send you a link to her stuff so she's like the mom I mean this girl is phenomenal
1: that'd be good Tanya this has been great thanks a lot okay
0: oh thank you Stephen. I don't want it to end
1: I loved hearing about the spirit that was developed as people stood in line to vote. This was a concrete example of ordinary people doing extraordinary things when they buy into the action and seize it as their own. I am looking forward to bringing Tanya back to see how the National Black Workers Center built upon that work and moves us closer toward achieving that vision of black freedom where, as she said, black people have ownership over their labor. So once again, Thanks for joining me this week. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And go to Patreon to become a sustainer. Until next episode, stay safe and be well.